Hello, my name is Jim. This is my podcast, The Bloody Vegans. You're very welcome to it. Each week, I'll be traveling ever deeper into the world of veganism, discovering along the way a multitude of viewpoints from the political and ethical to the practical. I'll be doing this through a series of conversations, each aiming to further illuminate my understanding and hopefully yours of all things plant-centric. And this week is no different. This week, I think, is episode 80. As you may know, I can never remember. Um, and I'm going to be speaking with Alexandria Lafata. Uh, she is a plant-based hospitality specialist. She's got over 10 years experience in the industry. She's also an activist uh, focused on animal rights lobbying, legislation, as well as climate change, human trafficking, food injustice. And Alexandria documents uh, the horrors of animal agriculture uh, through slaughterhouse visits, save movement uh, work, uh, as well as, and, uh, and a particular subject for us today, as well as documenting um, live animal markets, uh, particularly in the New York area. So uh, we get into all of that. Obviously, we, uh, we cover some of the uh, pandemic-based focus on wet markets, etc. Um, so without further ado, here's a conversation between me and Alexandria Lafata. from cartoon movies when I was a child. Um, there was a movie Charlotte's Web. Um, I saw it when I was about four and I stopped eating meat immediately. Um, yeah, it was, if you've ever seen Charlotte's Web, it's tragic. Um, and so I kind of freaked out a bit. I asked my parents to explain it a bit more and they explained that's how you get animals. You know, I mean, how that's how they produce meat and hamburgers and chicken, that it comes from animals from farms, etc. That was it for me. So I haven't had meat since I was four, and that was 28 years ago. Um, fish came very shortly thereafter. I watched The Little Mermaid. There's a scene of The Little Mermaid where Sebastian is just running around the kitchen while like a chef chases him with a knife. Ooh, and that was that was about it. So I haven't wow. had meat or seafood since I was four or five from cartoon movies. And I didn't I didn't go fully vegan until probably my late teens, early 20s, because even up until that time, I had a misconception about dairy. And I avoided dairy when I could, so I never ate eggs, I never drank milk or anything like that, but I would cheat and have a slice of cake from time to time. So I was predominantly vegan until my 20s, but I, no, I was plant-based. I shouldn't say vegan because I really wasn't fully committed to not having animal byproducts. Um, and then I educated myself a bit more when I hit my twenties about the reality of dairy. Um, you know, I don't know how things are in the UK, but especially in the U S we are, it's very ingrained in us in our schooling that dairy is very, very important for you and that it's incredibly healthy for you. Um, at no point are you ever taught that it's food for a baby cow and that that baby is taken from their mother and you are stealing that milk. This is nothing part of our learning process. And there was also a huge ad campaign here. Um, athletes, celebrities, models, you know, the got milk campaign. I'm sure there was something similar mm -hmm. over there with different, yep. you know, celebrities that were relevant um, in that country. And so it really wasn't until my late twenties that I fully understood that I shouldn't even be like cheating from time to time and how morally apprehensible I found the entire situation. Um, and then in my like early 20s, so maybe for the last 10 years, I got involved in animal rights activism. And I've been super strict ever since. I'm amazed at the level of empathy of a four-year-old watching a Disney film. I'm surprised. It, it forever surprises me that more people don't go vegetarian or vegan or plant-based from cartoon movies as children mm. um there's dumbo which shows the exploitation at zoos and there is you know the fox and the hound which is a heartbreaking look at hunting and bambi which also was a heartbreaking look at hunting and i always watched these movies and was really horrified and i would cry afterwards like i didn't find them to be joyful mm. particularly um and my parents didn't push me i i think to an extent, they probably assumed it was a phase, mm. but they indulged me. And so I think that was also a big part of it, too, is that I was very unnerved by it. And my parents didn't 
try to force me to consume it anyway. They just started cooking two meals for me and working around it. Wow. Did they, um, do you think they picked up any of it at the time or, you know, did they, did they kind of think, like you said, they, they thought it was a phase, but did they kind of pick up any of that empathy or maybe some of the other arguments, the health, the environment, any, anything else come from it? Um, my mother was a bit more amenable to it. She had been a vegetarian for most of her life. So I think when she started cooking kind of that separate meal for me, she started eating that a little bit more. Um, of course, I wish that they had jumped on board with me um, for empathy reasons. Um, but it was more of a, if she feels that way, we'll allow her to feel that way. Yeah. And how about, you know, you mentioned that, um, dairy was deeply ingrained in the sort of standard American diet. It's certainly the similar over here. You know, I remember as a child, uh, it was a great privilege to be the milk monitor in primary school. So that (laughs) meant that you got to, um, you got to carry the tray of milk over to the kids for the morning snack uh, and everyone got to have their milk. And I also remember there being a couple of kids who were lactose intolerant or just you know, people and <laughs> not baby cows, whichever you want to call it. But, you know, there were there was lactose intolerance and they were always treated a bit oddly. So, yes. you know, they were always kind of a bit weird. So that, that, that um, you know, you mentioned there about the Got Milk campaign. So it definitely resonates. And I think that still goes on in um, in mainstream culture, you know, in the UK now. I'm sure it does in the US. Like, as a, I appreciate this wasn't a leap that you'd necessarily taken, but you were still... Uh, you'd still taken the leap of not eating meat and so on. And that's so intrinsic into kind of particularly um, US and UK culture. You know, what, what was school life like being the kid who didn't eat meat? Interesting. Um, I, even at that time, like I wouldn't drink milk. So I would say I was lactose intolerant sometimes just to get around it. But even then I wouldn't drink milk or eat an omelet or anything like that. So I was still pretty strict. Um, it was interesting. Um, kids would often try to sneak meat into my meals. Like when I wasn't looking, um, teachers at some point had approached my parents and said, you know, it isn't healthy that, you know, you're allowing her to not eat meat. Um, and so people had actually approached my parents, you know, telling them that they were not doing what was best for me by allowing me to not eat baby cow food and, you know, rotting animal carcasses, essentially, which... <laughs> As an adult, you I look back and I'm just like, how absurd. Um, but my parents stuck to their guns on it. I was very lucky. Um, but it was interesting because I never even met another vegetarian until I was probably like my last year of high school or in college. Wow. It was a different time. You know, now I have tons of friends and who are vegan, plant-based, you know, vegetarian, all the other tarians and ways that people <laughs> identify. But back then it was just very very strange that i did not eat meat or cheese or when i would go like i always had to pack separate food i never had a school lunch in my life um even when i would go to parties my mom would send me with my own food which everyone thought was so crazy which nowadays that's so normal like you know who has you know gluten intolerances and all these things so it's very normalized now to kind of tailor your life to your dietary restrictions but back in 1995 it was not (laughs) um i would take like cheese off of my pizza at pizza parties and just eat like the bread with the tomato sauce on it everyone looked at me like i was (laughs) (laughs) tragically bizarre but um What's wonderful now is that there's actually meatless Mondays in New York City schools. Mm, wow. So it's done such a complete, there's been such a complete shift from the time that I was in elementary school and junior high and high school till now, where now they're encouraging children to eat plant-based and there is, you know, meatless Mondays and things like that. Tell, tell us a little bit about, you know, how you got from, from there uh, and then, you know, obviously taking the leap to veganism and then ultimately to the place where you thought actually my personal veganism isn't isn't enough almost like i need to take a step further into the world of activism i need to do something you know what was that journey like i think i also i think a lot of it also had to do with um movies that you watch i think you often watch movies and we're always drawn to particular characters that see something that's wrong and then they do something about it and we 
admire that in a sense, but when it comes to our daily lives, we think that like our own actions are enough, but we don't take that extra step to really mm. put our money where our mouth is, so to speak. I suppose that's yeah. the best expression I can really think for it. Um, and I went to my first PETA protest for fur uh, right when I got into college. I went to one and I realized this is a way where my personal choices, yeah, it helps, of course. Um, and I know that every little bit helps and it lessens demand, et cetera. But I figured if I have the stomach for it and I feel comfortable going out there and doing these things, then I really should be taking advantage of the fact that I have the opportunity to do more. Um, and then I eventually got involved with the safe movement, going to vigils at slaughterhouses. Um, I went to my first one and I realized that if I had the stomach for it, which they're not for everybody going to live markets and slaughterhouses for vigils, but I realized that if I had the capacity to do it, that it was important that I should to get that footage out there. And it's one of those things where you kind of, once you go to these things once, you realize like, okay, like I'm going to do this forever. So it wasn't like to like a long, um, a long journey to get there. It was just once I went to one protest, I was like, okay, this is part of your life. Now we have to keep looking out for more protests. And once I went to a vigil, it was like, okay, we're going to come every two weeks, Thursday morning. And this is part of, you know, your routine now. You mentioned that it's not for everyone. And I've heard lots of, lots of people say similar things that, you know, that they, they are, whilst they might participate and they get involved, they're also kind of very conscious that, you know, psychologically, it's not, it's not for everyone. It'd be, be good to hear a little bit more about, about that, you know, how, how you perhaps have overcome that. I appreciate everybody's got their personal stories, but how you've personally, you know, found the stomach for it, if you like, because I imagine the first time you did it, I can't imagine that it would have just come to you, you know, and you'd have been fine, you know, like I'd imagine they would have left a mark. So it, yeah. it'd be good to understand a little bit about your your journey from from the psychological standpoint. Yeah, the, the first vigil I went to was actually, it was pretty intense. Um, we had been to this little, there was a, a slaughterhouse market, and it's right in a residential area. Um, and we had gone there and we had seen a truck that came in. It was very eye-opening just seeing like these seeing the animals in person, the condition that they were in, and they get pulled in. And then at a certain point in time, everybody had to leave. And I decided to stick around for another 10 minutes because we heard that there might be another shipment coming. Um, and the truck actually was pulled around the, the block. And I approached the truck driver. I asked if I could spend some time with the animals, and he let me. Um, so I was by myself, really, was my first like real interaction. Mm -hmm. Everybody else had left. So it was just me and a truckload of um, sheep and baby goats. Um, I cried a lot that time. I've since become, I hate to say it, but I've become very numb to it to a certain extent. And I don't cry as much now. And I've kind of just learned to learn to deal with it, unfortunately. Mm. Um, but the first time was, it was pretty brutal. There were a lot of babies on the truck in particular. And um, knowing that you actually can't do anything to stop what's going to happen. So you, the inevitable is happening. It's going to happen within the next hour. You're here. There's just this, you know, still barrier between the two of you, you know, between you and the animals, and there's nothing you can do. And I think that's the worst part is seeing their suffering, but not having the power, unfortunately, because of laws and regulations to stop the horror that you know is happening. Um, so that was particularly brutal, especially because at that slaughterhouse, um, the kill floor is right up against the street so you can actually hear the animals banging up against the wall and you can hear them crying as it happens so there's really no it's an it was an interesting setup because it wasn't an industrial slaughterhouse it was somewhere where i could be on a public street and i'm right up against the wall where there's a kill floor and you can hear it so that was the first time was particularly rough for me mm. um cried a lot cried a lot when I got home but at the very least I was able to document that they existed and that they went through it um so you feel like very helpless at first which is a natural instinct because you can't you don't have the power to stop it 
But I found a little bit of solace in the fact that at the very least I was able to give them water. I sing lullabies to them to try to just calm them down or soothe them a little bit, pet them. I document it, photos and videos to try to get it out there so at least their stories get told. Um, but with that being said, I have, I was surprised at the tolerance I had for it because at no point did I think like I can't go back or I can never do that again. My first thought was, when is there another vigil? Um, but it isn't for everybody. And I don't, I think that I recognize that everybody has their own strengths. Everyone has their own tolerance levels. Everyone also has their own background of trauma. So I personally don't have a traumatic background. I've never had any physical abuse. I've never had any mental abuse or anything like that. So I wasn't triggered in any way. I was lucky enough to not have that in my life. But for somebody who has lived in those, you know, has had experiences like that, this could be incredibly damaging potentially to their, you know, to their mental health. And so I think I just recognize that if I had the capacity for it, then I should continue with it. Yeah. No, I completely understand. And and more power to you because those are, you know, incredibly traumatic experiences and and you documenting, like you say, that those lives existed and, and getting that that story told and, and out there, I think is, you know, incredibly important. On that note, was there you know, I imagine like and I don't, what year specifically was this? Were we in an era of social media by this point? You know, at what point did you did you start almost feeling the effect of being able to post that footage somewhere and almost feel an instant reaction back? Was that at the very beginning, or did this kind of social media bit come slightly later? Um, this was already in the age of Instagram at this point, and so mm. I immediately uploaded things to Instagram that day. And by the end of the day, you know, I had 40 DMs back of like, this is horrible. Like, you know, people who are vegan and, and plant-based, you know, obviously have a natural inclination to yeah. like reach out to you when you post stuff like that. Like, mm. how are you? This is heartbreaking. But it was also, I was surprised at how many people in my life who are like diehard car carnivores who have always like given me, you know, a lot of flack for being vegan reached out like, oh, or like I, that made me cry or I haven't been able to like, I wasn't able to eat my lunch today. And so I was able to see this like immediate reaction, which I also think is, was probably part of the reason too, why I decided like, okay, this is for me. Like I'm going to keep doing it because with the age of social media, there really was this like instantaneous reaction and it was able to get out there so quickly. Mm. Yeah. I, I guess that's, um, do, you know, it'd be good to get your view on this. Do you think that's kind of, um, accelerated the 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 save movement the activist movement in the in the world of veganism and 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 generally speaking have you you know had had, had positive experiences off the back of that acceleration or or have you also found you know in this world of polarization that actually it's just <laughs> it's also come with uh, almost a, a secondary trauma in the you know you put yourself out there and you're going to get a lot of heat back um, what's your experience been like that, you know, in that world? Definitely a mix of both. Um, <laughs> there's, there's certainly people who see it and they are horrified by what they see and they take that step, you know, the, not that step, but they take that second to kind of like, mm. oh, like, what did I just see? Yeah. Um, and they're very, I wouldn't want to say that they're, thrilled by what you've shown them, but at least they are inquisitive or curious. Um, and then there's, there's so much support to you from like the vegan and plant-based community here, especially mm. in New York and New Jersey. So on that aspect, it's really good because you have everyone in the community that like kind of rallies around you. And a lot of people have positive feedback to it. With that being said, not everybody is thrilled that I post, <laughs> um, <laughs> Not everyone is thrilled that I post that. A lot of the, my messages on Instagram, my DMs are very, very interesting. There's some people who say, you know, it's wonderful that you would go and, you know, get that footage out there. And then there are just people who send you just long, you know, paragraphs going in on you. A lot of like threats. Um, wow. So mixed bag. <laughs> wow. Was that a bit of a shock to you? Or were you kind I expected of, it. You, were you kind of prepared for it? Yeah. I, you know, I, as someone who hasn't had meat since they were four and has always been very vocal about it, 
Right. Um, so <laughs> even when I was at, like birthday party, like a tenth birthday party, I was like, "That's that's mean. That was a dead animal." So I've always been um, pretty vocal about it, and it's always had a mixed reaction. So I very much anticipated once I started putting it on social media, it would be the same thing. Yeah. Did you have to develop a different level of resilience? Because I'd imagine, like, you know, I'm just thinking back. When you're 10, it's difficult enough, you know, like <laughs> at, a, at a party, being being any any form of difference as a kid growing up, as we all know, is is set upon by the, by the group. Kids can be mean. And um, but that and that's one aspect. But social media is like that on, you know, on steroids sort of thing. It's it's um, it can be that tenfold and people particularly probably even worse because they're hiding behind distance a wi-fi connection and, and their screen um so was there another level of resilience even though you you know like you say you'd been sort of training yourself since four years old really in in you know i'm going to be an activist and i'm going to i'm going to have my voice heard but was there a different level of resilience that you had to develop you know with it being kind of coming in unfiltered into your kind of home into your direct space in front of you on your phone I think um, for the most part, I, I'm i not tragically impressed by cowardice, which is usually what, you know, the keyboard warriors are who send me those messages. <laughs> so I think I, I, I try to keep that attitude about it. Um, I think a little bit more in the beginning, I was probably a little bit more taken back by um, like the level of like the violent threats I would receive. Wow. Um, so I think at first it was just like a bit, you were a bit taken back by it. Mm. Um, but it was something I like very quickly acclimated to and was just like, all right, <laughs> <laughs> cool. <I don't... laughs> it wasn't going to stop you. No, it, you know, it didn't particularly bother me so much. I think again, it, I expected it. And I'd also, I had a bit of a tougher tolerance too. I ran, you know, I managed a nightclub for five years <laughs> and I would have just, you know, grown men scream at me on the weekends if they would get, you know, they were thrown out for being excessively drunk and they would just, so I think that my tolerance just over time, uh, <laughs> sadly was, was built up. Yeah. Yeah. So it, <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I get it. I get it. Totally. But on, on the, on the positive side, and you mentioned it, you sort of alluded to it a little bit, but I, I imagine you found a, a bit of a community again, thinking about, like you said, there was a long period of time in your upbringing where you hadn't met another vegetarian, let alone, you know, encountered anybody who was, who was vegan. And and then to go into this world of activism, saves, bearing witness, pizza protests, etc. Did you find a, a community, you know, and was that easily found? Were you easily welcomed? Yeah, I was, very pleasantly surprised actually how quickly I ended up um, forming relationships with people years ago that I'm still very close with. Um, it was my, I remember my first vigil, the organizer of that particular vigil was so, so nice to me when she saw me walking down the street and she was like, are you here for us? I was <laughs> like, yeah. You know, like she was so excited that there was like a new person who wanted to come. Um, they introduced me to everybody. We all exchanged numbers immediately. Um, and then since then, I, um, I'm a member of a few other organizations like Voters for Animal Rights, um, the Save Movement as well. And it was, it was very, it was interesting. It was kind of an interesting way to go from all of my friends. Everyone eats meat, everyone's eating everything. And then to be able to go out with people who were mm -hmm. like, oh, no, we're going to go to a vegan restaurant. It was like the heavens opened up. <laughs> <laughs> so it was, it was very um it was a relief almost mm. yeah no i could I, I imagine it would have been you know like, like you say <laughs> just just the thought of being able to um to not be the awkward vegan in a group when when was you know you're choosing where to go for dinner <laughs> like just just even that comfort <laughs> of like you know, we kind of know where we're gonna you know the, the genre of restaurant isn't up for debate it will be a vegan restaurant but which one um right which is something i never it was always like pulling teeth to try to get you know my <laughs> friends to go to a strictly vegan or vegetarian restaurant and i have a few of my close friends who from time to time would cave and they would indulge me um but as the rule of thumb you know we're going they're going to a sushi restaurant or a steakhouse or this place and it's like 
fantastic. <laughs> um, and out of principle, I would always get a separate check. Um, and it was never in the sense of like, I'm nickel and diming and don't want to like just evenly split the bill with anybody. It was more like my own like protest to be like, I'm yeah. not helping you pay for that chicken. No, ma'am. <laughs> so it was nice to just go out to a restaurant and even just like equally split like split a bill five ways if you're with five people because mm-hmm. I didn't mind putting money towards whatever everyone had or their appetizers and their drinks it doesn't that doesn't bother me it was just it was an it was just a completely even different dining experience and not having to eat my food across from you know an animal that I had just I, I remember there was one time I went out from a fr- friend's birthday dinner and I had gone to um, a vigil that morning. And we had a lot of cows there and they were in really rough condition. Um, just an awful, awful morning. Mm. And then we all went out for my friend's birthday dinner and two got hamburgers and two got steaks. And so I'm sitting there and like that morning mm. I had been singing lullabies and giving water to them and crying. And now I'm sitting across from people who are eating that animal. And so it, I would say that finding a community was just more of a relief for me than anything yeah. because it, it just made simple things like going out for drinks or, and you know, appetizers so much simpler. Yeah. <laughs> no, I can understand that. And, and to be honest with you, I had, I'd never really thought about it from that dynamic, but you're absolutely right that you, there's an extra layer of, of trauma almost that's brought back every time you then have to interact with the rest of the omnivorous world. The fact that no one cares you know, that feeling. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And like, I wonder, like, you know, was this cow sourced from, you know, the live market we were at this morning? Mm. Probably not, but there's a possibility. And like that, knowing that would just like, it, it made the entire experience so unappetizing. And it was, yeah. you know, as much as you love your friends who are not, you know, vegan and plant-based and you want to spend time with them and you want to socialize with them there's such a disconnect that I'm experiencing and I'm looking at everything from just like such a different lens. Um, so I think having, I think it's really important to, for people who are even just getting into eating plant-based and, or trying to go vegan or trying to get more into activism to at least, you know, establish some form of relationship with a few people who have already done it because it mm. makes it a lot easier. Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. It does. Absolutely. There's, there's a point I want to, uh, uh, to, to go back to you. You mentioned a couple of times in your activism and I've seen it on your, on your social media profiles, you documenting live markets in New York. And, um, the reason I particularly wanted to draw attention to this and get your viewpoint on it. Um, and I know we talked about it just before we started recording, but is in the last year obviously there's been a real spotlight on wet markets and um you know the 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 source of um the pandemic has been essentially sort of pinpointed down outside of some conspiracy theorists but but has been pinpointed down to a wet market in wuhan and so on i think people would be surprised to learn based on the the mainstream media narrative that these markets aren't the exclusive uh, right of of China. I'd love to get your view on it, your experience with it, and and your perspective on that mainstream narrative. I was horrified, first and foremost, I was very horrified with the very racist reaction that people have had. Um, and this idea that this is something that only comes from Asia and this is something that's only done there. And that's just simply not true. Wet markets, live markets, markets like that, they're in every country. This is nothing unique to one you know, area or region. And I was really disappointed by the way that the media kind of covered it to say that like, because they would often refer to it as like the the wet markets that you predominantly see in China and parts of Asia. And they kept kind of making it seem like this was something unique to, you know, other countries and continents and not the United States. And I, even to this day, we've barely seen any media coverage of 
okay, so if this is how the pandemic can arise from this type of market, what about the ones that we have here that are just as filthy, just as unregulated? Um, and to pinpoint that on, you know, one country or what, you know, is such a, <laughs> I honestly don't even know the word for it. It is, I think it's incredibly irresponsible, first and foremost, to constantly feed into that narrative. It's dangerous and it's simply not true. And I think that it's such a missed opportunity as well because the entire world is finally aware of like, okay, you know, animal markets pose a huge risk to public safety. And whether or not, you know, people are interested in, you know, cutting animal consumption out of their lives for health reasons, um, or if they're doing it for, you know, ethical reasons like I do, I think health is also one aspect that I think everyone can kind of agree on to a certain extent. And, you know, to not acknowledge that almost every country, probably every country, I'm saying almost every country because I don't know for sure, but I would, mm -hmm. I would, I, it's a safe assumption that a predominant amount of countries and continents all over the world have these wet markets, live markets, and even so much so that in, you know, kind of the animal, the animal uh, activism community I'm in, we do not even use the term wet market anymore. We simply say live animal market mm. because unfortunately the media took this term wet market and made it sound so specific yeah. to China. Like they don't exist everywhere else that we try to use the term like live animal market now to show like, no, they're everywhere. And you cannot blame and that, you know, act like it's so specific to one country when that simply isn't true. And I think I had hoped that, a global pandemic caused from eating animals would cause, you know, every country to be a little bit more introspective and say, well, do we have them here? Do we have this? Do we have enough strict regulations? Are they being inspected? Because they probably aren't being inspected that much. I've been to some, you know, at least here in New York and New Jersey, I have been to live markets where they are, um, they're hosing blood and feces into public sewer systems. So, you know, the next pandemic or the next, you know, outbreak, it could very just as easily have come from New Jersey or New York. And I think that this it's such a missed opportunity for the world not to be saying like, well, what are we doing in our, you know, specific areas that could also contribute to a global pandemic like this? And I think that the narrative that the media has come up with is I think it's been proven how dangerous it is. Um, and. I think it's very heartbreaking that, you know, some people are being targeted simply because this narrative has been like that, you know, this market is specific to one country and that this is how this all started. When the reality is, you know, they're everywhere. I've been to live markets. Um, I went to one in New Jersey and right in front of me, they, um, they hosed blood, feces, um, urine into a public sewer system. They had animals out on public uh, a public sidewalk in a residential area and these they were chickens and they were very very obviously sick there was you know pus coming out of their eyes um open sores and or on orifices everywhere that causes a huge public safety risk to that area as well and so i think the hope i think the one positive thing i think that i've seen out of it is that at least people in my life have become more interested in learning about the live animal markets here. It's yeah. so like I've had, you know, a, fr a few friends, you know, reach out to me and they're like, well, could, you know, do you think that like anything like this could ever happen? Could ever start from like the places that you go to? And I'm like, absolutely. Of course it could. There's no, the regulations, um, it doesn't matter what country you're in. As far as I'm concerned, the regulations are very, very lax, if not essentially non-existent. Um, you know, there really is no regulations. Um, and the industries have also had a very long time of conducting business in a very unregulated way. And they feel very empowered by it because it is allowed to slide. Um, you know, I've gone to live markets where I've had blood and feces thrown at me by the workers and they're not concerned at all because as far as they're concerned, like they're allowed to do this. Um, oh. It's just just shocking, really. Uh, uh, your view on the 
the the why that mainstream narrative hasn't been uh, adopted. Do you, do you think it's as simple as there's a profit motive there of, and the, the kind of the mainstream media is kind of in on that, if you like, that if we start turning the spotlight onto um, sort of Western animal agriculture, whether it be through a, a live animal market in New York or any other a- aspect of factory farming, et cetera, then the whole sort of house of cards topples down. Uh, do, you, do you think it's that com- combined with racism? What's your kind of y- your view? I think there's so many reasons and so many factors. Um, I think, you know, I think a part of it too is that, um, there's, I think, a reluctancy to be a bit introspective. And I think it's a lot easier to say, like, point and be like, mm. oh, it happened over there. Didn't have, doesn't happen here. And I think that that's just this innate, um, very unfortunate perspective that is kind of continually perpetrated. Mm. Um, and I think a lot of it also has to do with advertising. Um, you know, I watch the news and, you know, you're going to see a few commercials by, you know, major fast food companies and major meat companies and things like that. And so I, you know, I know to an extent that does play into it. Um, there's always been a reluctancy, I think, for the media to, to also go after the animal agriculture industry. Um, <sighs> let me put it this way. We have sent, I have personally sent really brutal footage to a ton of media outlets and especially when everything with this happened to kind of say like, Hey, like we're talking about, you know, you're talking about what they call wet markets, but what, you know, I like to refer to as a live animal market simply because Mm. I think that they've made that term incredibly dangerous. Yeah. Um, here's some footage of one in the area that you cover. Like this is your, this is like your local news channels, you know, and I reached out to all of them. Like I filmed this two weeks ago. This happened here this is something that's probably worth exploring, um, especially given the interest right now. And it's always crickets back. Really? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, once in a while, there have been a few organizations here that have actually made some headway with um, the press. And this is the most surprising to me is that um, TMZ. Do you have mm-hmm. TMZ? Are you TMZ? Over I'm edge, aware right? of them. <laughs> okay, yeah. Um, yeah. They have actually been surprisingly receptive to that footage. Um, there are a few people here, um, I think some from the Save Movement and some from a group Slaughter Free NYC and some from a group New York Class. They actually reached out to ZMZ and TMZ actually reposted on their um, social media and their website footage from these markets and saying like, wow. you know, they were shockingly at this celebrity news network. Yeah. They were the ones that... No, nobody was more shocked than I by this, but they were the ones that were actually the most receptive to it. And they were the ones that posted, you know, footage from another group, I think out in California somewhere. And they posted from here in New York and they, for some reason, seem to understand like, okay, there's a worldwide pandemic caused from animal markets. What about the ones here? And so I'm continually surprised that TMZ, a celebrity news network, understood the importance of this as to where I feel like most major news networks that, you know, predominantly deal with um, worldwide news, let's call it, not necessarily like celebrity news, have been so shy to address it. Mm. That is quite shocking. <laughs> my my only recollection of TM, TMZ, well, I, I feel like I should say TMZ because that's, mm-hmm. you know, we would say Z, but you know, uh, <laughs> we, we say we say Z differently. So, <laughs> um, my only recollection of them is like covering Michael Jackson's death, you know that that kind of yeah, stuff. It's, so it's, it is quite surprising that they want to entertain that. Yeah, so I think that was a pleasant surprise for our, a lot of us yeah. in the community. Was like, okay, fant- fantastic. Like I. I, so yeah, I think that that also shows too how, I think for me too, that also amplified how hard it is to get these major news networks to actually cover topics like this because they were reluctant to, but you have TMZ that was open to doing it. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, and your experience, you know, being outside of a 
live animal market, like you say, and you're you were experiencing hostility from the folks who work there and and so on. And I I kind of, you know, I I would have thought that would be expected. But I'm intrigued as to, you know, these are, like you say, uh, situated often in residential areas, in places where people are going to and from work, people are walking by, things are going on, it's part of a community. What's the reaction like that you've seen from from those folks? Like, because I imagine like, if if no one's pointing it out, I could imagine a, a world in which it's kind of like wallpaper to people. You know, they they walk past it every day, so it's like, well, it is what it is, kind of thing. It's not. Oh, it's not like the one that was on the telly with the pandemic. It's a different one because it's here. You know that kind of mindset. But when somebody starts pointing something out, somebody stood there protesting, filming you know, being quite vocal, it, it, I imagine starts to, um, uh, kind of jog the, 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 the mindset of the people walking past say, oh, hold on, is something odd going on here? What's happening? Have you, have you experienced anything from the locals or local residents, etc., saying, what are you pointing out? Can we have a conversation about it? You know, and any of that kind of interaction? Yeah. Um, so unfortunately where these, live markets um, and slaughterhouses are situated in residential areas. Um, it's predominantly, and I hate to use this expression, but it's predominantly, um, you know, like a lower income area. Mm-hmm. Um, for example, you know, I live on the South shore of Staten Island. They would never let one go up here. And so the very, so it starts off already by being an incredibly exploitative process just along from where they're situated. Right. Um, so that's like a really also important factor is how, you know, you're not going to find, you know, they don't have a live market, you know, on the Upper East Side, for example, here, but they'll put them in other residential areas. And it's kind of like, well, if it's safe enough to be there, then why won't you put one in these, you know, posh zip codes mm. like that, you know, and mm. so that's also a factor that plays into it. And for the most part. The residents are not happy that they're there. And again, I can't speak for all the residents, but most of the residents that we encounter have actually, I've had a lot of conversations and they've approached us and they've said, you know, the smell is always horrible or there's always blood in the streets or I have to have my daughter walk the long way around because there is, you know, blood or there's, you know, a dead chicken carcass on the sidewalk. Um, and so I think that that's, what's interesting too, is that for the most part, the residents aren't particularly thrilled because they're the ones that are actually experiencing the smell from it and the garbage dumps that are left outside and they hear the screams and things of that nature. And so for the most part, you know, the direct residents in those areas are very, um, Almost welcoming almost us um yeah. kind of like you know i've we've spoken to a lot who are like yeah like this is this is awful this is horrible but then there are other times where we're at um animal markets where they're so inconspicuously put into an area that people actually don't even realize that they're there sometimes and then when mm. we do tell them they're like what do you mean like i live a block away what do you mean? And then I'll be like, well, come around to the back with me. And I'll walk around to the back of the block and there's just blood everywhere. And they're just horrified because it's going into, I can't stress it enough how many times I've seen this get hosed into public city sewer systems and just what a immense threat to public health this is. You know, even if you take the ethics, you know, the mm. animal ethics out of it. Um, and so we've predominantly been met by people who, if they do know it's there, they don't love it for obvious reasons. Um, And the ones who are the other markets that are a bit more inconspicuous, people are shocked and shocked in like a horrified way when we explain like, oh, like this is a full slaughterhouse and tannery. And then you kind of like walk a few feet with them and you show them a gelatin dump, like this, these massive, massive bins um, that they're just doing these constant, constant dumps into. And they live two blocks away. And so they're usually shocked and horrified. Um, and so I think the more often than not, the people in the community are uh, kind of receptive to us being there. Um, yeah. 
you know, again, not everyone. Some people who live in those areas are also patrons of these establishments. And mm. so, you know, but with that being said, I've never really had, I've never had um, a negative or a um, heated interaction with somebody who lived nearby them. Even if we do have, you know, if they walk by me and they go in and they buy something and they leave, we don't, um, we don't try to get into an argument with them or anything like that. So for the most part, everyone's amenable to it. And if they do live there and they support that, you know, that market as a patron, we kind of just allow them to go in and out without having an interaction. I'm because we don't so- want to alienate the neighborhood as well. No, totally. Yeah. No, I can I can completely understand. The it's not surprising to or not shocking to me, but um it's kind of awful to hear and it's it's kind of exactly what you'd expect really that like you say that there's a almost a a purposeful placement of these in in areas where there is um, a lack of sort of socioeconomic power, if you like, within the community, because they know that, you know, the people there won't have the social influence to be able to reject this, protest it, uh, have the ear of their local council people, their senators, whoever it may be, they haven't got that. So it's, it's, I suppose more evidence of the of a of a an oppressive system, not just from a, an animal welfare point of view, but you know, on uh, people with lower incomes, you could probably link this to the education systems. There's, a, it's kind of a, all systems uh, can this all this this sort of all systems of oppression linked kind of piece there. I think is what what I'm kind of hearing from that 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 one example. Yeah, and I, I also too. It's also very important um, when we like when I talk about life markets. Also, to, to say you know, it's also very easy to demonize the people who work at these life markets and slaughterhouses. Yeah. Um, and I am very much somebody who tries to also be cognizant and aware of the fact that many of these people do not work there by choice. This is oftentimes. This is, you know, whatever their life situations are, this is the only job that they can get to provide for their family. And, you know, animal agriculture also exploits people and it does exploit the workers as well. And I think, you know, and I understand kind of the gut reaction sometimes is to be like, well, who works there? Like these people must be monsters, yeah. et cetera. And to kind of like yeah. want to yell at the people, yell at them when we get there and stuff like that and have these interactions with them. But you know, it's really important to, to kind of think like, okay, well, how did this person end up working here in the first place? It, was this their first job? Did they think when they were younger that this is what they couldn't wait to do? Probably not. They could. There are some people who do enjoy this side of work, but yeah. some people are are in situations where they cannot obtain other forms of employment and they have to feed themselves and their families. And so you know, the, the entire situation is complicated, um, to say the least. And so I always try when talking about going to live markets and slaughterhouses that a lot of the workers are also kind of, are also exploited. And oftentimes this is their only means of income. And so I try to develop a, as good of a rapport as possible as I can with the people who work there. Um, doesn't always work that way. I have had workers um, chase me with an electric cattle rod. Um, I have, you know, blood feces thrown at me. Um, you know, a lot of threats, you know, like violent threats, sexual threats, things of that nature. But I've also had workers who have kind of expressed to me, like, I don't want to be here. I have to be here. Um, and there are, you know... I won't say too much about him, but there was one worker in particular who, um, you know, he's differently abled and he expressed to me, like, please don't think I'm a monster. Like I can't, nobody else will hire me. And so it's also important when kind of talking about live markets that, you know, 
animals are exploited by animal agriculture, humans are exploited by animal agriculture, the planet is exploited by animal agriculture. Animal agriculture just exploits everyone and everything. Um, and so the hope, at least for me, is that there will be job opportunities created for people who do work at these live markets and slaughterhouses to get out of this line of work. Because it's easy to say, like, you know, they should quit and find anything else to do. But unfortunately for some of them, that, that other job opportunity doesn't exist. Mm. Yeah, 100%. Again, the, the systems, the, the areas that, 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 that these, these operations are placed in, it's, there's a purpose to it. You know, it's, it's designed, um, whether slowly or, or, or quickly and deliberately, and it's designed, you know. Yeah. And so it's, 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 it's always interesting. Every time you go, it's a bit different. Like I've said, I've had workers who have been lovely to me while I'm there as lovely as, you know, the experience can be. And, you know, people in the area who have been, you know, grateful that we're there, but you've also, I've also been, like I said, chased with an electric cattle rod and, you know, had customers come in and, you know, curse at me under their breath and stuff like that. So it's, it's, you know, it's a mixed but like everything in life, you know, there's a lot of dynamics and other things that play into it. And I think that especially for the, you know, animal activism community, like moving forward, I just think it's so important to not leave the exploitation of workers out of the conversation. Um, especially like for somebody like me, you know, I'm, you know, I'm a very privileged white woman. And so for somebody like me to come in to these areas and demonize people who work there, that would be so out of touch and so, mm. you know, it, it's something that would be easy for somebody like me to say, but, you know, you have to really look at the full situation and how so many other of these like socioeconomic factors play in. Yeah, absolutely. You, you you really do and I, and I think it would be easy for folks who want to get into activism to like you say to to jump into it with all the the sort of vim and vigor and excitement of I'm going to change the world here and um and perhaps make some missteps in that and 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 target the the individuals who are ultimately also part of that same system um, and and don't necessarily want to be there themselves or be doing what they're doing. I think it's a, it's a really valid point you make and um, sort of sage advice, I think, for anybody going into that world or thinking about it, which sort of yeah. actually leads me on to um, uh, I'd like to get your perspective on this and I'm just conscious of time, but I, I really appreciate your, um, your view on this. So I, I, I'm going to ask anyway. So there's... Obviously, been and it's fantastic. A huge rise in um, veganism over the last few years, perpetuated by um, some amazing kind of documentaries and uh, social media and bits and pieces. There's lots of stuff, influencers and then things like this that have that have perhaps taken people on a bit of a, a journey towards uh, veganism. And I'm thinking of um, you know whether it be that vegan influencer chef or whatever or that kind of netflix documentary and all this kind of thing and it's got a lot of people sort of on the bus if you like but i don't necessarily see lots of people on the activist bus i see lots of people on the kind of uh i've kind of done it now i'm here and uh i've i i'm I, you know i'm eating uh quinoa and i put uh chia seeds <laughs> on my porridge now so you know, I've pretty, I've pretty much done it. We're going to save the world now, uh, and as long as I repost the odd story, then great. Um, well, I just like to get your view on it because, because that that I and I appreciate. I I came at that with a very biased, cynical sort of perspective in the question, um, but I would genuinely like to get your view on whether that's there's there's a goodness to that insofar as we need to normalise, we need to mainstream veganism, or do you think actually? we need to be a little bit more aware that we're still just 1% of the world's population. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, it's, it's obviously um, tragically exciting to see more people posting and it becoming such 
a part of mainstream culture because that will have a direct effect on how companies make decisions moving forward. And, um, you know, companies that get funded and topics of conversation and all of that is, I'm thrilled, love to, you know, over the moon about all of it. However, um, I think that everyone in particular has something that they're good at or something that they can bring to the table that they should also be doing in addition to, you know, changing your diet. So if you see things like, sorry, that is, okay, we're good. <laughs> so if you, <laughs> like, um, so if you, you know, you watch things like Seaspiracy, for example, and you see Seaspiracy and you realize like, okay, maybe you're finally done with seafood, fingers crossed that the entire world is going to watch it. And yeah you know, act on what they see and make those daily changes in their lives. But I also think it would also be so much more impactful if everyone who decided to make the switch to being plant-based did something in their own lives that kind of um, just plays off of what they're good at. You know, like you said, chefs and seeing more chefs post. And that's incredible. So if you're in the food space utilize that platform to talk more about the benefits of plant-based eating and things of that nature. Um, if you see things that you don't love, but you, you want to get involved in activism, but maybe you don't have the time. And a lot of people don't have the luxury of being able to take off of their job to go to a protest or, you know, maybe public situations like that, you know, make them personally uncomfortable. There are so many different organizations that have online action alerts where you can, mm. you know, sign, add on to protests, autofill um, emails to your local um, politicians, you know, in support or opposition of, you know, a new law that's coming up. Or, you know, if you're really into fitness, and that's kind of, you know, your thing, and that's your platform. Also emphasize, you know, the benefits of, you know, plant-based eating when it comes to athletic performance and encourage people to watch Game Changers as well. Um, And so, my cynical nature in me tells me, well, it's great that people want to stop eating it and, you know, you repost something, but we need to do more. But the cautiously optimistic version of me is hmm. very much so hopes that in addition to making those daily changes in your lifestyle and your daily eating, that you will kind of capitalize on whatever your personal strength, your personal hobby, or, you know, whatever else it is you do in life and also incorporate it into that. I love that. Bring, bring your, bring a skill to the table. If you like, whatever that is, right. Whatever know. that is, everyone has, you know, yeah. everyone has completely different things. You know, not everybody is, wants to go to a protest like me and scream or go to a slaughterhouse. Um, mm. Some people are really great at, you know, they're really interested in politics. And if you're interested in politics, there's so much that you can do right now without, you know, working for government or things like that. Like I'm involved with a group Voters for Animal Rights here in New York City. Um, and I was a member of their voter um, election, you know, their election team this year. And so we interviewed you know, over 300 candidates who are running for city council and all of the things that we have, all the elections we have for 2021. And I didn't have to have, you know, a background in law or politics to do it. You know, you're approaching it as a constituent who wants to know where your local officials stand on, you know, the pertinent matters that are going on when it in regards to animals in your area. I, again, I, I've learned so, so much just over the last year by listening and sitting in on the Zoom calls and learning and seeing how Poli the poli you know politics work and a little bit more about how legislation like the legislative process works and so I also think that sometimes people are a bit skeptical to get involved in um, a certain form of activism because they don't have a lot of experience in it but I think things are so designed to be inclusive and to recruit as many people as possible now that there's so many more opportunities for people to get involved in ways that they had never anticipated before definitely Absolutely. But Alex, it's been amazing chatting to you and I definitely want to get as many of the links to places that you would recommend people start if they're interested in any of the things that you've talked about um, and taking that next step. Uh, we'll, we'll definitely post all of those in the show notes, but um, but thank you so much for your time. It's been, it's been awesome chatting with you. I very much appreciate you having me. Um, the podcast is incredible and 
I really appreciate that you are showing um, how varied the world of veganism and, you know, actually is. Cool. Thank you very much. I appreciate <laughs> it. <laughs> Cheers and Alex. Until next time. Bye. Have a lovely evening. Bye.